this morning to the book of Titus. We'll be in Titus again in chapter 1. If you're visiting with us, I do want to welcome you again, as I know Mr. Al already has, but if you haven't been with us, we started a sermon series in the book of Titus last week, and while a sermon on suffering might have been more appropriate this morning after a Louisiana football week, we want to continue in the book of Titus. I do hope that your life has not been tremendously affected by what's happened this past week and that you were enduring despite everything. Um, We'll be in Titus chapter 1 verses uh, 5 through 9 this morning and much of our time will be spent describing the uh, what an overseer is to be like, what the person, those who aspire to be in pastoral leadership the qualities of this person. And so before we begin that, I thought it was important to share with you, why is that important for you? Why is that important for you to know and to listen to? Why should should I spend an entire sermon telling you what I'm supposed to be like? Well, in case you've forgotten, we are in the midst of a pastor search. If you're visiting with us, we're in the midst of a, a, a pastor search time. A second reason this is this is very important and something I might should have said last week as we introduced the book of Titus. Paul, in everything that he's doing and everything that he is writing, is very intentional. And so as he said last week, introducing the book of Titus, he says, I am a slave of Christ Jesus. I, I'm an apostle. As he says these things, Paul, in identifying himself and in sharing what he's been through, is not building himself up, but Paul is always intentional to say, this is what I'm going through, and this is the example that you're to follow. If, you're, if you recall, if you've read 1 Corinthians and these uh, other writings of Paul, Paul will often say things like, follow my example as I follow Christ Jesus. In the book of Philippians, chapter 3, verse 17, this is not in your notes. I would invite you to take the notes out in the bulletin. And this is Philippians, chapter 3, verse 17. Paul says this, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have seen in us. Join in imitating me, this is Paul, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have seen in us. Paul is sharing his example with others, saying, Paul is an apostle, he is a pastor to many of these groups. But what Paul is saying in all these times, and in setting the standards for pastoral leadership, is he's saying, this is an example for the people. He's not the only one who should be this way. Every Christian should be aspiring to these qualities. And so while this is the description of what an overseer, of what a person in pastoral leadership should look like, this is what he should seek after, everyone is to be like this. Everyone is to seek these qualities. And so this man that we're going to be describing this morning is to just be an example for all of you, what everyone should be aspiring for in Christ. So, those two reasons. We're in the middle of a pastor church. Secondly, he sets the example that you should be seeking to be. And then thirdly, the present state of the church. I want to read to you, and I'm, I'm going to read to you several statistics, many. And it's not just for shock effect, but in a sense it is. You need to know the state of the church, the state of pastoral leadership. And so, listen, listen fast, and I'll, I'll speak fast, and we'll get, we'll get through this. 
of the 1,050, there were 1,050 pastors surveyed, and this is evangelical pastors. Every one of them had a close associate or seminary friend who had left the ministry because of burnout, conflict in their church, or from a moral failure. So of 1,050, all of them knew someone intimately who had left the church, who left ministry. Friends, if they aspire to these, if they're called, should they be leaving? No. 948 of the 1,050 stated they are frequently fatigued, worn out on a weekly and even daily basis. 935 uh, said they considered the leaving the ministry at one time. 590 said they would leave if they had a better place to go, even somewhere in the secular workplace. 81% of the pastors said there was no regular discipleship program, effective effort of mentoring their people, or teaching them to deepen their Christian formation at their church. This is evangelical pastors. No discipleship program, 81% of these. 808 of the pastors said they did not have a good marriage. 808, 1,050. 790 felt they were unqualified and or poorly trained by their seminaries to lead and manage the church or to counsel, counsel others. 756 stated that they only studied the Bible when they were preparing for sermons or lessons. This leaves 38% who read the Bible for devotions and personal study. 802 said they were burned out and battled depression. 399 said they were divorced or currently in a divorce process. 241 of the pastors said they felt happy and content on a regular basis with who they are in Christ, in their church, and in their home. That's 23% of those pastors. On a Barna study, 1,500 pastors leave the ministry each month due to moral failure, spiritual burnout, or contention. 50% of pastors' marriages will end in divorce. Can you? I read this last night, and then one of them just ran to Katie. It was just... 80% of pastors feel unqualified and discouraged. 50% are so discouraged they would leave the ministry if they could, but have no other way of making a living. 80% of graduates who enter the ministry will leave the ministry within the first five years. 80%. 70% of pastors constantly fight depression. 40% said they had an extramarital affair since beginning their ministry. And in a 2000, uh, year 2000 Christianity Today survey found that 37% of pastors said pornography is a current struggle. And it's more in the 50% range who have looked at pornography recently. 50% of pastors. So, why is it important? Why is it important? The integrity and faithfulness of overseers, privately and publicly, will determine the health of the church. If we went to statistics on the health of the church, you would find that in, in Southern Baptist circles, at least 90% of the churches are plateaued, not growing or declining. This isn't just about effectiveness. That's not, that's not what it about. it's about, is the church growing? But many of you, probably many of you, if I asked you to raise your hands, would say, you know someone who left the church because they were hurt by a pastor, because of a pastor who fell morally. 
you would say there's, there's no integrity in the church even. As I look at these things, and this has been a, a difficult study, these qualities, I will say personally, if we, as we walk through these qualities, that many ministers are not qualified. And I'm not talking about ones in prosperity churches. Or I'm talking about ones at New Orleans Seminary. Many are not qualified. Friends, it's not just because they say they're called that they're qualified. And it's not about us being judgmental, but are we using the screening process that God has given to us? This is important because it affects the health of the church overall. The health of the, and the reputation of Christ. The reputation of Christ. So this is why it's important. Now, let's look at the text together this morning. Will you stand with me and we'll read Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. Beginning in verse 5, Paul says, This is why I left you, Titus, in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered, or a drunkard, or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Maybe see it. Lord, we do pray that you would give us clarity through your word this morning. Lord, that you would help us to understand the standards that you have given us for the men who are to lead your church. We pray for your spirit to open our hearts and open our eyes, to see, understand, and obey your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we begin in verse 5 this morning, what was Titus left to put in order? Paul says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Paul is very general in the beginning. You might put what remained into order. If you were with us last week, I mentioned that the church at Crete is obviously a young church, somewhat young. It doesn't have elders yet, but it has. it's at the stage where these people have received the gospel and they've had it for long enough to where men have grown up and they're going to stand out so that Paul, he says, you appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Titus is picking from among the body. They've had the gospel long enough for men to grow up and stand out so that Titus may be able to pick elders from among the body. So what was Titus to do? Well, the thing that we can safely derive is that the church needs leadership. That's what Titus' main role is, is to appoint leadership. The church needs order. It's important that we mention this because in an anti-authoritarian culture, people don't want overseers. They don't want people to oversee them morally. But it's very clear that there be to be men in the church who oversee the spiritual health, who shepherd the spiritual health of the people, who give clear instruction in this. 
And so, this church of God is to be led with authority. It's not whatever you say goes kind of club, but it's to be led. What does elder mean? We see, have this word, and we have a couple words that are going to be used to describe this person. First, there's the word elder, and then later in verse 7, you see the word episkopos, which is overseer. The word elder comes straight out of the Jews. These were rulers among the Jews. Elders were rulers. But Paul transfers this to the church. And so there were to be elders. Timothy being a young man is just one example that elders don't have to be uh, older people. But they are to be mature. They are to be mature in the Lord. And we'll see this more. But also the term in verse 7, overseer, describes in more detail what this person is to do. The term overseer, it says in verse 7, let's look at this with me quickly, and we'll go ahead and hit this. It says, an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. This person is to be an overseer, and what it means is that he is like a household manager. A household manager. The church is God's house. It's his people. And so this overseer is to see over God's house. It's not the overseer's house, it's God's house, and he has the responsibility to seeing to God's things, that it stays in order. So we have these two terms, elders and episkopos overseer. Another note we can make here is, is just how many? Is this to be a one-man show, or are there to be multiple? The text says that you would appoint elders in every Town. What we need to point out here and what Crosspoint went through for a period of time in putting in elders is that this noun indicates it wasn't just a one-man show. There were multiple men that they were to draw out and that were to be leaders. Now, it's possible that in this area there were house churches. And in those house churches, yes, there may have been one leader. But what we want to see here is that they weren't so autonomous that they didn't have accountability. These leaders were connected. They were working together. And so even if it was a house church that was in one small town, there might have been multiple house churches. Paul is saying that this isn't just a one-man show. They are to lead together, elders in every town who were to lead, multiple men who were to oversee the church. This is what Crosspoint has done. This is where Crosspoint has moved to a plurality of elders. Dr. David and Mr. Al lead together. It's not one of them leading by themselves. They lead together. And as we'll see, one of the qualities of this man is that he is not arrogant. They must not be arrogant because then they try to lead on their own. He must be able to work with others. Where do these men come from? They're to be picked from among the body. There should be some leaders in our bodies who are picked from our midst. Men. Do we have more men who are growing up, who are aspiring to be overseers in our body, who show these qualities, who lead their families well, and who can lead God's people well? We may need more overseers. I wonder if any of you men are willing to stand up to the plate. How are they picked? And this is important. This is very important. How are they picked? 
They're at least affirmed by other qualified overseers. Paul has entrusted Titus. Titus is one who Paul sees as having these gifts, and he is to go and he's to search out this body for ones who are qualified. Now, there are a couple things we need to see here. First, these men are... They've been living amongst these people. And so as Titus lays out these qualities, this man must be all these things, there are going to be people in that body, they're going to know whether that man is all these things. They're going to know. And so this person is first, he's evaluated by the body. They're to report to Titus that this guy is arrogant. He can't do it. I, will, I won't listen to him. I don't respect him. Or they'll say, that, that man's kids, <laughs> he can't lead. He can't even lead his own children. They know. So he's evaluated by the body, by what they know about him. But he's also evaluated by men who've already qualified for these things. Paul is appointing Titus to go and to help establish these. And so one encouragement that I would give that I see clearly in this text is often churches, especially Baptist churches who haven't had elders, will just use people who've never who've never been these things, and they'll say, yeah, he can lead us. He has the ability to teach and all these things. What I want to say is that it is a man who has already been these things, who is qualified as an elder, who affirms that someone else is qualified as an elder. And so it's really important, I think it's great that this is happening, that our pastoral search team is from men among our, and women among our body, and then also our elders. That's why that's happening. Our elders, they, we've seen, you've said that they have these qualifications, and so they're able to say, yes, we approve of them, they have these gifts, or no, they don't. They don't. So this is how they're picked evaluated by the body and people who already are said to have these qualities. All right, so now we get to the main points. Introductions over what he should be, what he should be. Notice that effectiveness and charisma is not a qualification here. It's much more serious than that. What he should be. First, in verse 6, if anyone is above reproach, this term above reproach simply means without accusation. He's blameless. Again, Titus is able to go to the entire body and say, what would you say about this man? And this man is to be without accusation, blameless in these qualities. This is a general term, so as we look at the more specific ones, this man is to be blameless in all these qualities that we will talk about. Now, One thing that I do want to say and make clear, this is a preacher. How many of you know a preacher that just everybody likes? If they do, that's a bad sign. It says later in the text that this is a guy who's to be capable of rebuking false doctrine. There are going to be some folks who don't like him. And so, I do want to say that this man is not going to be faultless. But... We need to be careful about solitary complaints. All of you have probably heard of a church where a group of somebody said this about this guy and a group of deacons rose up and just chased him out. We need to be careful about solitary complaints that we let turn into mountains. Listen, if you find a man of these qualities, then you, you need to be ready to stand up and to protect him. You need to be ready to stand up and say, Don't talk about him that way. 
Yes, if, there, if there's something of accusation, then we need to deal with that. But we also need to be careful because your com- complaints are not always infallible. So protect them from unnecessary criticism. But he must be above reproach. Also, he is to be a shepherd to his family. He's to be a shepherd to his family. This is in verse 6. He is the husband of one wife. In just a moment, we'll look at his children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now, we are opening up a lot here. The husband of one wife. This has been looked at in various ways. The text actually reads, he is a one-woman man. A one-woman man. Must he be married? No. 1 Corinthians 7.32, Paul commends singleness, especially for the work of the ministry, because that man can give more to the gospel, more time. And so it's not that he has to be married, but marriage is the common situation of the time. And so this is what Paul is addressing. We'll say more about that in a moment. But the pastor should be the one the congregation can look to as an example in marriage. As an example of persistence, of faithfulness in the relationship with his wife. We need to remember that marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. Of God and his people, even in the Old Testament. And so marriage is of great importance to God. And so as we've said already, this man is not going to be faultless. But marriage is particularly important to God. And so a man who fails in his marriage, how is he to lead God's bride? How is he an example to God's bride? Listen to Proverbs 6, chapter, uh, six verses 27 through 33, when it comes to the topic of adultery. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he is hungry. But if he is caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor. His disgrace will not be wiped away. Friends, adultery, even though it can be forgiven, doesn't mean that man should be leading God's people. Forgiveness and then being put back into the role of pastor, that's not the same thing. Those are not the same things. And so I want to be gracious here. A man should be forgiven. He should be restored to the church. But the text says a man who is faithful to his wife. This is what Paul is referring to. And so if a man cannot set an example in this area, then he's not qualified to be an overseer of God's people. A man who cannot be faithful to his wife, an example in marriage, is not qualified to lead God's people. Next, the believing children. I should also say, and just list qualifiers, that text has been interpreted in various ways throughout history. Polygamy was common during this time, and so this is one thing Paul is also including here, that this man is not to be married uh, to multiple women. 
there are also questions of, can this, what if he was divorced before he was a believer? There are multitudes of things that we can ask here. I think the thrust of the text is, is this man completely faithful? Does he have the highest of moral integrity and a faithfulness to the Lord in regard to marriage? And so in some sense, I, I can't answer all these questions. Uh, even with the children being believers, you read five different commentaries, you're going to get three on one side, two on the other. Six, three on one side, three on the other. This is the way it's been interpreted. So, we walk with the Spirit, but this man is to be screened thoroughly, thoroughly. And if his wife doesn't respect him, the church won't either. The church won't either. So, this is to be thorough and very important. His children being believers, believing children, we have the benefit of accessing Timothy here. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4. Let's look at this together. It's in your notes. The text in Timothy says, He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? What we see is this man's leadership is to be respected and submitted to in his home. Because if it's not, it will not be respected and submitted to in the church. He will not know how to lead well. Now, the text says his children must be believers. That's If you have an ESV, if you have a different version, it might be something different. But, must his children be believers? The term is pista, pista. I'm not saying a bad word, this is the term. The term can be interpreted, it can be translated faithful, it can be translated believing, it can be translated trustworthy. There are a variety of ways that this term can be translated. And so, like I said, there will be commentators who, who split halfway down. What we see in Timothy is the point of this text is that the children be submissive to him, that they submit to his leadership. And if you look down in Titus, this seems to be what it's saying here as well. His children are to be believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. The text is referring to how the man handles his home. Do his children submit to him? In one sense, we could say, why do we place on him the burden of his children having to be believers He can't control that. People would ask that question. He can't control whether his children come to a knowledge of of saving faith, of God saving them. Again, we have to be led by the Spirit here. Here's what we can say for sure, for certain. If his children don't submit to him, he's not qualified to lead God's church. If his children are rebellious, he needs to step down. This is a difficult thing. But if he can't manage his household, his family, then the text is clear. He can't manage God's people. He can't lead them. And so, do we know it, what this, how this term should be absolutely translated? I don't know. But this is what's for sure. If he can't get the respect and submission of his own family, he won't lead God's people well. And so he should step down. Let me read a quote to you from John MacArthur. This is on, I said that we would say more about a man who's not married and does not have children, which I qualify for one of those. 
If a man is not married and does not have children, he must be tested in other areas of family life. And so a man that you find not married, a man who does not have children, how do we know? What, what qualifiers do we put for him? Well, he needs to be tested in other areas. He needs to be screened thoroughly. How is he related to his family? How does he, does he respect his own parents? These are questions that need to be asked. So a shepherd of his family. His wife and his children should walk in a knowledge of the Lord because this man shepherds at home. Because he teaches them the word. Because he loves them well. Because he raises them in a knowledge of the gospel. These are the bottom lines. A shepherd of his own heart. If you're looking in the notes with me, this man must not only be a shepherd of his own home, but a shepherd of his own heart. Look at these verses. I've listed the positive ones first, and we'll get to the negative ones altogether. First, he must be hospitable. You see, the gospel should make us eager to share everything, including our home. In this text in particular, there were Christians who would be kicked out of their homes because of his faith, because of their faith in this territory. And it would also be dangerous to harbor them. If you took them in your house, you also could get kicked out. You could be arrested. And so in one sense, this is a very dangerous thing that one be hospitable during this time. But this man should be known for his hospitality. Practically speaking, this should challenge us. Who are you willing to invite into your home? It might endanger you at times. But you should trust the Lord and you should be known for your hospitality. But this man, this elder, this overseer, he's to be an example in every way that he lives, correct? And so that should be something that he is sharing intimately with others. Let me give you a couple of examples. Martin Luther led the the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther, there's a book published about him called Table Talk. You see, Luther was famous for inviting many people into their home. Luther was a monk, and so formerly he wasn't married, but eventually as he led out in the Protestant Reformation, he would be married to a nun who left the nunnery. And so it's interesting, but on the night of their wedding, while the guest left by 11, a man fleeing from a peasant's war nearby dropped in asking for shelter. Again, this is the night of their wedding, and they allowed him to stay. The Luthers brought up four orphan children from among relatives in addition to their own six and would have often students in their home, all in all sometimes numbering up to 25 people in their home. At dinner time with their, stu- their students, Luther students would bring a notebook and paper and they would ask Luther questions, writing down his response. This has been published, as I said, into a little book called Table Talk. And it numbered 6,596 entries from students sitting around his table listening to him talk. I wanted to give you one fun uh, thing from the table talk. Sometimes it would be things that were very serious about faith, and sometimes it would just be Luther, who was a really interesting character. He says, the only portion of the human anatomy which the Pope has had to leave uncontrolled is the hind end, if you remember (laughs) If you remember, he uh, was fighting against the Pope in this time and against Catholic theology. Another example, uh, we have been shown incredible hospitality since we've been at Crosspoint, living with uh, a couple of families. 
One example that sticks out to me personally, though, is Byron and Cynthia. I've learned a great, great deal about hospitality from Byron and Cynthia. I came in the summer of 09. Katie and I were not married yet. We would be married later that summer. I came to intern. When I came up, I, I didn't choose who I was to live with. They just were supposed to, were working on that. And Byron said, why don't you come live with us? And they had three, three children at the time, yes. And I was like, oh, oh, okay, whatever you think. And they put three children in one room so I could have my own bedroom. Three children in one bedroom so I could have my own. And let me tell you, this man should be hospitable because this is where discipleship occurs. This is where a young man learns how to love his wife, learns how to even argue with his wife sometimes. Not that Byron and Cynthia would ever have an argument, but this is the most intimate form of discipleship. This is why this man, who is to be the example among God's people, should be hospitable. He should invite people into his home. If he's not interested in being hospitable, then he's not interested in being in discipling. And so you should not be interested in him as a pastor. This man must be hospitable. Moving on. He must be a lover of good. This means passionate about good people and good things. I think a question that should come out of this is asking a man about his hobbies and asking him what causes he's passionate about. What organizations that is he really interested in? Are there countries that he wants to be involved in for specifically for gospel growth? Church planting. What, what is he interested in? What's he passionate about? He must be self-controlled. This term means wise. You'll see a term later that's disciplined, and it's much like this term, but this term actually means wise. He's a discerning man. And one of the reasons I think this is very important is because some of the statistics I gave earlier. These men feel like they don't have good marriages. These men often feel fatigued, worn out, even depressed. Can I tell you that pastoral work is a job that in some ways feels like it's never done. There are always more people that could be visited with. There's always something that could have been said during the sermon that could have been said better. It never feels done. He always feels that he could love his family better, that he could read more and become a better servant for his people. This man needs to be discerning or he will wear himself out (laughs) or he will be no good for God's people. The funny thing is that God has set it up in such a way that once this man no longer leads his family well, he's no longer qualified to lead God's people well. Do you help ministers in that? This is one way you can help them. Friends, if he's not leading his family well, then you need to ask him to step down because he's not going to lead you well. He's not going to be a good overseer for you. So this man must be discerning. He needs to know when to quit. He needs to know what's important. Also, he needs to be upright. Upright refers to the way that he treats others. In the next word, you see holy. These words are going together. How does he treat others? And then what is his relationship to God? Is he pure in heart? So upright, showing justice towards others, taking up for the cause of the oppressed. And then holy, his attitudes towards God. He should be a man of great compassion and of great purity. And then disciplined. This term means he's not mastered by anything, but he remains self-controlled. As, you're, as we're screening people, 
we need to ask, what, where does he struggle with self-control? This is a man who doesn't need to be mastered by anything but disciplined in what he does. This is also a term that is found in the fruit of the Spirit. Self-control. The fruit of the Holy Spirit in Galatians 5. And this is why I want to say again, this isn't just the qualities of the person who's to stand here. These are the qualities that we should all be seeking after, that you should all be seeking after. Those are the positive qualities that he should have. What should he not be? What he should not be? First, we see arrogant. Arrogant, the term means self-pleasing, self-willed. He is driving himself. His desire to hear his own name drives him. Now, there's a difference between driven and arrogant. Driven, being driven will assist a man in doing what God desires. He wants to do good. He's driven. But arrogance prevents a man from seeing what God desires or doing it the way God wants it to be done. As I said earlier, this, there are to be multiple elders. An arrogant man will not work well with others. But he wants to go his own way. To start his own path. This man that we're interviewing We need to know how well he's going to work with others. How well he will serve his pastoral staff and not just tell them what to do. A lot of times we want a strong leader, but a serving leader is what we need. So, quick-tempered. Quick-tempered. He should not be reactionary, but patient. It doesn't mean passive. It means he understands his emotions and he seeks to control them. He doesn't have outburst of anger. He's not a drunkard. He's not given to wine. It means he's not addicted to it. He, he, again, he is self-controlled. This is an element of self-control. He's not violent. It, may, it literally means he doesn't hit people. Literally, he doesn't start fights, but he can end them. Just kidding, it doesn't say that. <clears throat> but it is not quarrelsome. And then lastly, this last negative quality. He's not greedy for gain. This is monetary gain is what the the word refers to. (laughs) Pastoral work has a bad name for many who are driven by money. I can't tell you how many people I've heard say, uh, talk about people who want to be pastors because they make a lot of money. Yeah, that's the wrong wrong motive. This man must not be driven by money. These who are working, because from the statistics I read to you, they're working, they're doing it because they can't find something else to do. They don't need to be overseers. And I'm not just harping on them. The body is to help them in this, to remind them what he must do. So we've talked about what he must be, what he must not be, but also what he must do. Those were the characteristics, his character, his life at home. But what he must do. Let's look at verse 9 together, and we're almost getting close to being finished. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. First, he must hold true to the trustworthy word as taught. What does this mean? Let me be clear here. It does not mean how you were taught. (laughs) It may not be how I was taught. What it says is he must hold true to the trustworthy word as taught. 
what Paul is referring to here as the gospel that was passed on to him. Paul talks about this himself in the book of Galatians, the gospel that was even passed on to him. He, re- he saw Christ Jesus on the road, right, in Paul's conversion. And if you pay attention to the text, Paul would travel back to Jerusalem a couple years later to test what he was believing with the apostles to make sure that it was correct. This man is to hold true to the trustworthy word as the, which refers to the gospel. It refers to the teaching of the apostles, specifically the message of salvation through Jesus, his death which satisfies the wrath of God and forgives our sins and his resurrection. Every man who has aspired to be an overseer must be based and founded in this. This is his message. This is the focus. The fact that he holds to it as taught means there was more than just the Holy Spirit. Now, some of you get antsy in your seats here. One of the things you often hear young people saying, I could refer to myself, is I feel called. I have the Holy Spirit. I'm ready. Let's do this. I'm ready to lead some people to the Lord. I'm ready to lead a congregation. Friends, even Paul says, this man doesn't just have the Holy Spirit, but he has people who have trained him and passed on the gospel to him. And so we want to be very, very clear and hold us very, very important that this man, it's not just him and the Holy Spirit. He's being trained. He's being held accountable. God has always used the combination of studying and being taught and the revelation of the Holy Spirit. This man doesn't just walk alone. Now, what he's, he's to hold true to this, this trustworthy word, the gospel, the good news of Christ Jesus, of forgiveness. But what's he to do with that? First, he's to give instruction and in sound doctrine. This is with the goal of producing healthy lives, of healthy believers. He's to give instruction and in sound doctrine. This man will interact with people. He will have opportunity to give advice to people. And the question is, will he be able to instruct in the truth of the gospel? Will he be able to give wisdom that's founded in God's word? Another thing that could go along with this, he's to be an expert in this. This is what he's to grow and to know. He's not to be an expert politician. It seems like pastors are trying to lead the way in all these things right now, science, politics, and all these. He's not an expert in everything, but he's to give wisdom in God's ways, to give direction. So he's to give instruction and in sound doctrine, but he's also to rebuke those who contradict it. In this sense, this man is to protect. Remember, he's managing God's household. When you're a household manager, when you're leading a household, you don't only instruct in a positive way, but you protect from those negative things. This is like being a father. The way that he's to be tested here is he also disciplining his children? Is he also protecting them from false things and rebuking them? This is what this man is to do. He's to recognize false doctrine, and he is to rebuke it. Friends, we have Christians who try to justify homosexuality now on biblical grounds. They use the Bible. Can this man defend God's word? Can he argue it clearly, soundly? Ever since the beginning of church history, there have been heresies that bring false teaching that have been presented. Paul's going to get to some of this in a, for next week as we study the next verses. 
The health of the church is dependent on men being able to talk through these issues with sound argument and strong biblical justification. One example of this, when this started happening, throughout the New Testament, it seems very assumed even that Christ is fully man and that he is fully God. That Christ is fully man and that he is fully God. As you get into even the second century, the third century, you have those that say Christ is not God. Christ was created. These heresies continue. They're still here today. This man must be able to argue clearly from God's word. He must rebuke false doctrine. Now, how do God's people help God's man to be who he's called to be? This is the last thing I want to cover. How are you to help? What are you to do? First, the beginning of the next verse says, There are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers. This is a verse we'll cover next week. But let me first say, one way you're to help is don't be an empty talker and a deceiver. Don't go around saying, well, he said this, but I believe this. I think this is, no, he wasn't right about that. Be humble. Be willing to change when sound arguments and biblical justifications are presented for a doctrine or belief. On Sunday afternoons, talk about the sermon instead of the preacher. He's not perfect. There are things I could have said better today. I know that. But when you go home, will you talk about how the Lord would use his word to change you? How the Lord would use his word in the church? You can talk about the preacher later. And talk to the preacher. If you think you could be of benefit, talk to the preacher. But if you're there to criticize, don't talk. Don't talk. Make sure that he has the time he needs for teaching preparation. Friends, this is how he serves you. He wants to be at the hospital with you. Most of them do. But this is what he's to do. He's to teach the word for your benefit. He's to rebuke false doctrine for your benefit. Will you make sure that he has the time to do this? Will you make sure that his time is guarded? Will you help him in that? Again, the, the job of a preacher, it never feels over. And so will you help him? Then recognize the burden on his family and love them. Recognize the burden that his family faces and love them. And then lastly, grow. One of the things that this... The statistics mentioned is, and I didn't read this one to you, but how many people are involved in Bible studies at most of these ministers' churches? It was about 20% of the congregation who are actually involved in Bible studies. This man gives his life to serve you. He gives his life so that you may know Christ and so that you may know him intimately. It's a deep burden. Paul says in Colossians, he, he has his, the burden for the church constantly. One of the sufferings he faces. And when you don't grow, that burden grows. He wants, he longs for you to know Christ and to love him and to walk with him. This is one of the best ways you can serve your pastor. By growing. By delighting in the Lord. This morning, we're not going to have a, a 
formal invitation. What we want to do is just sing together. Again, we've given this sermon for your benefit. It's not just to preach it to myself, although that's good. But this is who you are to be. This is what you're to aspire to. And then you're to pray for these who do this. So, let's pray together. Father, thank you that you show us, Lord, that you tell us the qualifications for those who are to lead your people. God, I pray that we wouldn't complain about them being too high of standards, but I pray that we would listen to them well. God, I pray for men who shouldn't be in the positions they are. Lord, that you would convict their hearts and that you would convict the hearts of your people that they would help them get out of that position. Lord, it's for the sake of your church and the health of your body. May we see the importance of this. Lord, may your name not be defiled because the ministers, pastors. Father, we pray for the man that you were to have here, to be leading your people here. We pray, Lord, that you would show the pastor search team that you would lead us and how we are to screen him. God, we pray for a life that exalts you in every way. Lord, help us as a people to all aspire to these things, that we may be blameless. God, that there may be no accusation against us, that we may walk wholeheartedly after you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand. Let's sing together this morning.